This is episode number 217 with aerospace engineer Carlos Hervas Garcia. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Very excited to have you on the show today. And you know how sometimes you hear the saying, well, this is not rocket science. When uh, somebody's describing something that is supposedly easy or quite simple to get your head around, they would, might say, well, this is not rocket science. You should understand this. This is very easy to grasp. Well, this time it is rocket science because on the show today we have an aerospace engineer, Carlos Hervas Garcia, who works for Airbus. Very exciting episode. I had a great chat with Carlos and what you will find out in this episode. Well, of course, at the start, we get quite carried away with the whole aerospace and orbital mechanics and the International Space Station. So quite an interesting chat, if, especially if you're looking for uh, like a glimpse of the world of aerospace and what aerospace engineers actually do. But then in terms of data science, I found this episode very insightful to see how data science, machine learning, deep learning, and artificial intelligence can be used in the space of aerospace engineering. So what are the applications? What, what benefits do those technologies bring to this forefront of um, us exploring beyond our planet, to, to exploring uh, interplanetary travel? And that is where uh, Carlos actually uh, applies his work in the interplanetary missions and interplanetary um, rockets and things like that. So it'll be interesting what value those technologies bring there. You will hear Carlos go specifically into two use cases, one for optimization with artificial intelligence and the other one is for fault prevention, detection and prevention or error detection with artificial intelligence. I thought both use cases were very interesting. And of course, we'll dive into Carlos's journey through his career, how he managed to combine his two passions, one for aerospace, one for artificial intelligence into his one career and how he's enjoying that, how he's going about innovation at Airbus, how he's helping the company succeed and thrive in the space of artificial intelligence. Very inspiring episode. Can't wait for you to hear all of the amazing things that Carlos had to share. And without further ado, I bring to you Carlos Hervas Garcia, aerospace engineer at Airbus. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today we've got very special guest on the show, Carlos Hervas Garcia, calling in from the UK. Carlos, how are you going today? I'm good, thanks. I'm very good. How are you? Very, very good as well. Thank you. Um, we're just chatting about the weather just before. Uh, I'm in Australia, you're in the UK. It's nice and sunny, beautiful start of summer here. How's things yeah. in the UK in terms of weather right now? Not here, I'm afraid, but uh, well, it's fine. We just have like uh, nine months of cold weather now, so yeah. it's just fine. Yeah, but I heard I heard you had some very nice uh, couple of weeks during the summer 
uh, with some sunny weather. Is that is that uh, were you there for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, this year we cannot complain. Definitely, we we have three months of, of uninterrupted sun. That that's something I've never seen in the UK. So <laughs> three months. Yeah, let's not, uh, wow. Yeah, three months. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Wow, amazing. Well, that that's very very exciting news. Um, <laughs> okay, well, thank you for coming on the show. It's a it's a great honor to have you. Uh, you're an aerospace engineer using deep learning and machine learning in an uh, in Airbus, and this is like I'm very looking forward to digging into your career. Um, how are you feeling about the podcast? But I'm I'm really excited. I mean, to me, it's a, an incredible opportunity to to be talking to you because, uh, yeah, I mean, you would be surprised, but I I did your courses uh, <laughs> once upon a time, so this is uh, this is really really exciting for me. And then yeah, it's, I'm I'm really happy to to share uh, with people what uh, what we are working on and and to push it forward. Mm, thank you, and uh, I want to say to the listeners that. I like when just before we started the podcast, uh, we were chatting with Carlos, and he mentioned exactly that that he had taken uh, our super data science courses about a year ago, and I was so shocked because I was, you know, like I'm so impressed by uh, Carlos's career, and you can like if you go to the show notes, you'll find his LinkedIn there and have a look. Uh, you know, Carlos, you're like the leading machine learning and AI. You're leading machine learning and AI applications including RNNs, LSTMs, and out cores and so on. So, like, you've very, got a very impressive background, but I guess it all, it uh, points us back to, like, our humble beginnings that, you know, we all learn regardless of our, and that's what you said, right? Like, there's always a desire and need to learn regardless of your level. So, I really appreciate that comment. I think that's, that's exciting for everybody that out there. Well, it's it's only it's only some uh, some months ago that uh, this this move has started as well in the UK. So, um, at least in Airbus, I mean, um, in in other parts of Airbus, there are other people investigating, and we are now a, a very well-established community. Uh, but yeah, in the UK, um, I mean, I saw this opportunity, and I I didn't hesitate; I went for it, and and it's been a very intense year with a lot of work uh, on my side. But very rewarding at the same time because being able to to do this um, on your job and apply it to space to me that's extraordinary and I'm really happy about it. Awesome, awesome. And um, just for the sake of our listeners, I want to kind of clarify here. So Airbus is a, a big company. We all know Airbus and uh, working in aerospace. Carlos inevitably is uh, working on projects where he won't be able to disclose all of the details. Uh, so, like, please forgive us for situations where Carlos might have to say, sorry, I can't talk about that. And we're going to be extremely careful about that because we want to preserve the you know, uh, privacy of Airbus and all of their um, the work that you're doing. But at the same time, we would love to learn from your experiences in how you, you know, approach challenges in AI, how you learn yourself and how your career went around, about. So I, th- I think that will be fair for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's get started. How? Tell us a bit about. Um, we know now you're an aerospace engineer. So tell tell us what does an aerospace engineer actually do? Like we've heard, you know, these uh, there's this term before, and we, like I think everybody has their own conception of what an aerospace engineer does on a daily basis. What what is your what does your job look like, and what do you do on a daily basis? 
Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. So aerospace engineering actually is, is very, very broad. So um, it covers, or at least when you studied in, in Spain and, and even in France, because I studied in, in the two countries, it covers really a lot of disciplines. Um, so ranging from like even airports, um, uh, aircraft jet engines, uh, space, um, missiles, well, all these uh, all these um, um, fields belong to aerospace, so you obviously need to uh, um, specialize to some some uh, extent. Otherwise, you are a bit useless in, <laughs> in the domain. So uh, myself, I went for um, for uh, space and and control engineering, and then when I joined Airbus, I did it on the space systems branch, which is maybe not so known. Um, in, in Airbus, like worldwide, because uh, we are mostly known for, for aircraft. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's also a very, very big part of Airbus and quite an important one. And, and uh, yeah, also a leader in, uh, in the world. And then, so I, I joined um, to the space system division where there, there's also um, a big variety of things to do. So uh, you can do from telecommunication satellites to um, Earth observation missions, also like interplanetary missions. Uh, well, there used to be a, a part doing launches as well. Now it's, it's a joint venture with our company, but there are many, many fields. And even we, within those uh, fields, like uh, I, I am working for uh, for the spacecraft, so mm-hmm. more precisely for um, interplanetary missions, I've been working. <laughs> wow, past, that sounds um, like a sci-fi. <laughs> You're building uh, well. spaceships to go to other planets. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's actually. I mean, w- we call it interplanetary when uh, when the um, so when the spacecraft uh, travels around the solar system and and just reaches its ultimate target, mm-hmm. uh, which is not Earth, basically. Um, but yeah, so and then even within that, there is um, there is a many different skills that are needed. So uh, spacecraft has uh, many different subsystems. So someone has to design the the structure, the mechanical structure that will support the spacecraft. Someone has to design the propulsion module. Someone has to design the the communications. Well, when I say someone, I don't mean a person, I mean a a team. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so myself, I I worked in the AOCS department. So that that stands for Attitude and Orbit Control System. Which, for people to understand, is roughly the autopilot um, of the spacecraft. So you cannot you cannot drive or steer the wheel in a in a spacecraft. Mm-hmm. You need a kind of predefined what it has to do as a function of where it is and what it can see. And this is the algorithms that we design and uh, tune and, and validate ourselves. So that's that is what I've been doing for the past um, three years. I would say three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's that's very exciting, and um, you actually reminded me uh, of uh, um, do you know Chris Hadfield, the Canadian spa- astronaut. Uh, yeah, it rings a bell. Yeah. Uh huh. So I was taking his course uh, on where was this um, on uh, Masterclass, Masterclass dot com. He has a course about era, like space space exploration. And uh, in one of the tutorials, he was describing how uh, your, you know, how much resistance is uh, have, have takes um, how much resistance 
and the aircraft experiences as it goes through the atmosphere. Um, yeah. And uh, he f- mentioned the formula. I forgot it. It, it had rho v s. I think rho v squared s or something like that. Do you know that formula? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's the dynamic pressure of the air on on you. Yeah, yeah. is that is and that correct? The, yeah, yeah. Times a coefficient, uh, which is the drag coefficient, or or when you are looking at the thing that lifts you up, then yeah. it's the lift coefficient. Yeah. I hope I said it right in English because I I studied this in in French and in Spanish, but not in English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, yeah. Sounded, it sounded right exactly. So it's uh, but you're talking about like how as a spacecraft goes through air, um, yeah. the amount of drag it experiences is proportional to uh, you know the density of the air, the the yeah. area of the spacecraft, and the speed that it's going. And you know the, I think it's rho v squared s. And so, yes. but as you go higher up there's less yes. and less density of air. And then in space, it's a completely different story because there's no drag. So as an aerospace engineer, you have to take the whole thing into account, right? Like before, as the rocket goes through, or, but wait, in your case, it would be like, if it's a satellite, then it's already deployed in space, right? And then you just need to calculate the situation when it's in space, right? Yes, yeah, that's, that's correct. So basically, it's even, even, even that, that, could seem like a uh, very similar thing. Uh, we we actually split it into so that the launcher would be the bit that uh, takes the the spacecraft uh, in outer space. Mm-hmm. So where there's no already no almost no atmos- uh, atmosphere, so almost no drag. Yeah. If you're if you're very close in a low earth low earth orbit, then uh, the drag is is. Uh, still a bit there so but it, it's nothing like uh, on a plane or or on earth mm-hmm. and if you are very far away from from earth then there's no there's no uh, drag mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. uh but yeah like so for these interplanetary missions uh, our mission starts uh once the launcher has put a, uh, put uh, sorry put us in a um, in a low earth orbit mm-hmm. so we don't necessarily care uh, about drag that much mm-hmm. uh, let's say so we don't need to design with that mm-hmm. but then there is a like if you wanted to re- re-enter earth or or even land on a on a planet with a with a dense atmosphere then that's that's a whole different story and it's quite challenging as well yeah yeah and uh, just speaking of like earth orbits i think it's very interesting uh, to to know that the International Space Station, like it feels like it's up there in space, but it's actually only about 400 kilometers off from the surface yeah. of the Earth. And like if you compare yeah, it to yeah. compare it to the radius of the Earth, the radius is about like 6,400 kilometers. So it's less than 10% up. So if you take a globe, the International Space Station is very close to the top of the Earth. But already yeah. there, there is so little atmosphere. There's practically no atmosphere there. In fact... Uh, yeah. Chris Hatfield says that the International Space Station experiences drag equivalent to the weight of a piece of toast. Like if you put a piece of toast on your hand, that's how much drag the ISS experiences. Okay. So yeah, so is that is that is what is the what is the law of Earth orbit? How high is that? Uh, well, yeah, you can you can have spacecraft. Uh, I, th- I think maybe down to two hundred kilometers, um, like above uh, the surface. Mm-hmm. So that's still. I mean, obviously, the the lower you are, the more drag you have, mm-hmm. and the sooner your um, satellite or spacecraft will decay. So mm-hmm. eventually, the drag will become so important that the velocity of your orbit. Um, 
or, or rather your um, your spacecraft will lose velocity in the orbit, so yeah. the orbit will um, shrink, yeah. and eventually you will re-enter the Earth. Yeah. So you, you, unless you need it, you don't necessarily want to be very, very close to Earth. Otherwise, you need to compensate for the air drag by by um, uh, correcting your orbit with delta Vs, and you're using propellant, so you're the lower fuel. you are, the more propellant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. So, and you know yeah. what I find really fascinating? It's orbital mechanics. You know the the whole notion that in space, like if you're going around the Earth, and mm -hmm. in order to go to a lower orbit, you have to go faster. In order to go to like you're going to be move, you have to be moving faster at a lower orb orbit. And if you go to a higher orbit, you have to slow down. And so like to move between orbits, you actually have to either accelerate or or the other way around. So, in fact, like to go to a higher orbit, you would have to th shoot your thrusters in the opposite direction to decelerate, and that would take you up to a higher orbit. Like that is crazy when you think about. It. How do you get your head around that? That's that's actually slightly slightly trickier than that. So, um, it's actually not that long ago that um, AI democratized to to like industrial applications and for aerospace this is this is even more true and given its uh, particularities so well given my passion about machine learning and my background in aerospace well it just made sense for me to to jump into it and and be uh, well pioneering in this aspect so uh, yeah, I, I was very lucky to to be given the opportunity to do so and uh, well it took a lot of, of effort from my side, uh, a lot of dedication, but definitely worth it. So, say you want to go from a low Earth orbit to um, to a geostationary orbit. So yeah. these, these are very particular orbits where uh, the period of the um, of the orbit is similar to the rotation of the Earth, so mm -hmm. 24 hours. Um, so if you wanted to go from a low Earth orbit to uh, to that orbit, then you would need to uh, put um, a delta V, a positive delta V, on your uh, on your vehicle to to get there. Mm -hmm. And then, so you would do you normally. I mean, I'm not an orbit uh, person, so <laughs> I hope I don't uh, I don't say anything because I'm more like a attitude control. Uh, Etc. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so then what you would do is um, you accelerate at, at a given point, uh, you raise um, the uh, apogee of your orbit, and then when so you would go from a semicircular uh, or or actually almost circular orbit to a elliptical orbit, and when you are on the far end on the uh, apogee, you you need to again. Um, fire to circularize that orbit. Mm, uh, wow, what I mean. So, so it's a it's a two two steps maneuver where you uh, um, increasingly, well, where you increase your speeds at two different times. And that's I, I think that if I remember well from school, that's a, that's a Hoffman transfer, mm -hmm. um, which is the most basic uh, uh, maneuver you can do. Wow, very interesting. Your, I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll have to read up about that. That is so cool. I find it. Yeah. I'm very, very interesting, very different as well. All right. Yeah, well, and, and by the way, by the way, just just to point out that uh, this this information, so in our department, is actually divided into guidance, navigation, and control, 
uh, attitude and orbit control systems and mission analysis. Mm-hmm. And it's the people from mission analysis that do all these um, orbit uh, orbit trajectories. And and by the way, the, the capabilities in the UK are are actually unique uh, in that sense. So we've we've designed. Uh, We've done the preliminary phase for most of the uh, European Space Agency interplanetary missions like uh, BepiColombo or uh, even Solar Orbiter, things like that. Wow, wow, very impressive. Very impressive to hear. Um, Okay, well, we're getting, we got a bit carried away with all the uh, orbital (laughs) mechanics and space stuff. Let's talk a little bit uh, or let's direct our attitude, the conversation towards um, data science. So tell us a bit about, you know, how. In all of this, and to, to the extent, of course, you can disclose, how in all of this do you apply or do you leverage machine learning, artificial intelligence? You mentioned on your LinkedIn that uh, some of the things that you use are RNNs, recurring neural networks, LSTMs, long, long short-term memory, um, uh, then autoencoders, genetic algorithms, you use Python, NumPy, scikit-learn, TensorFlow, all these like yeah. very advanced tools how do they help you in your work? Okay, so, well, all these techniques are are very useful to us in many different ways. So, for instance, a uh, very obvious uh, application case is uh, RNNs. So, recurrent neural nets uh, will with the uh, with their sense of of state or memory. Uh, that's very similar to to the dynamic systems that uh, we work with on a daily basis. So dynamic system has uh, have also states, and therefore RNNs are a very good representation of dynamic systems, um, or anything that you're trying to um, control. I mean, if you're trying to control a dynamic system, uh, well, using RNNs is something uh, well quite uh, quite normal. Then also, well, other axes of uh, investigation are like a meta model. So we have very complex models uh, out there that we use for simulation purposes, for design purposes, etc. What if you are able to capture this complexity and just run them on um, on neural nets, on deep neural nets, which are less computationally involved? Um, other applications, for instance, could be tuning. So you have a given algorithm that you've designed. Um, you use some um, artificial intelligence techniques to tune those algorithms to, to choose the values that make your uh, predefined algorithm algorithm work um, better. And well, also another very obvious application would be um, well today we basically design and tune our algorithms. But the machine learning um, in itself offers techniques to um, just declare some algorithms and then uh, by using the data or the simulators or, or whatever, um, the algorithms are actually learned as opposed to, to specified. So um, as you can imagine, that's also a very powerful um, approach um, that we're investigating so for instance one of the one of the videos I, I well that got me really into into wanting to investigate these techniques is, is a very simple and dummy video um, of the Atari game that probably most of the people here in the, this podcast have seen already uh, so I think it was DeepMind that uh, that was uh, 
um, uh, trying to to beat the Atari game, mm-hmm. and then yeah, like uh, you could see in the video uh, after 200 um, episodes, the yeah the policy was quite bad. Then 400 episodes, it plays like me, but because I'm very bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, yeah, and then 600, the neural net does something uh, unexpected, and and. Yeah, the tunnels these grids on the left, and then and then um, yeah, like uh, gets the the maximum score out of it. So we, we, we're just we're just hoping that perhaps uh, for some of the challenges that we have today, uh, well, AI could could find um, smarter solutions than what we do, or or not even smarter, but just like there are solutions that we we have to scope because of of their complexity, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, their complexity of. Um, specification, tuning, and, and validation. So perhaps uh, in the future, this uh, this will not be the case because the, the AI or the neural net learns it by itself. So we're working on, on that. Um, mm-hmm. That's one axis. And another axis is a very big axis of, of um, deep learning today, which is uh, anomaly detection. So our, um, our spacecraft are incredible incredibly complex machines that uh, need to be operated and you can imagine that uh, you cannot uh, interact with them um, like you do with a car so they need to have a certain degree of autonomy mm-hmm. and and also they need to be very safe so they all have a subsystem that we call FDAR, uh, so failure detection isolation and recovery subsystem so um, one of the things that we're investigating is a new a new way of doing FDIR um, uh, using this, uh, these techniques, basically, and that's that's where uh, where most of the work has been focused so far, um, mm-hmm. and this is where we we've been trying uh, different techniques like uh, LSTM, so encoders, uh, even uh, generative adversarial networks as well. Mm-hmm. So different techniques uh, just to see if we can come up with a more efficient uh, and more robust engineering solution to what we currently have. Okay, wow, thanks. That's that's very cool to, um, to hear. So I really liked how you described, how you compared what you guys do in the space of optimizing uh, your like um, different algorithms, different solutions using artificial intelligence, how you compared it to using AI to win Atari games because uh, ultimately yeah it, indeed it's a fair comparison it's a very it's a very simplified approach a very simplified problem when you're like trying to use an AI to bin, beat an Atari game but if you think about it yeah. like like what we are doing or what you guys are doing in our aerospace is you have certain problems certain challenges that you are finding solutions to well how about we get an AI and train it to like just like we train an AI to play an Atari game, how about we train an AI, yeah. even in a simulator, it doesn't have to be a real rocket, like you can't, you can't afford to crash a real rocket, right? You gotta sometimes yeah, use simulators. Absolutely. And then you train in a simulator to uh, see what happens if it solves a problem this way, like it pulls these levers or it opens the gas at this time or it, during launch uh, this, uh, this valve is, uh, is unavailable or is, is used to 30% or 40%, what happens? Like It tweaks all the parameters, it goes through multiple simulations, hundreds of thousands yeah. as I imagine, and then it might come up with a better solution than humans come up with. Like, is that about right? Like, do you guys use a lot of simulations for all these things? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's exactly that's exactly the point. So, um, I mean, if if you realize uh, a part of our work, once you've done the design and conceptual design of the algorithms, and and even the tuning, then uh, the rest is uh, okay. Simulate it mm-hmm. and let's uh, let's see let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And that's almost like playing a game, right? Like uh, you have a simulator. Uh, in our case, it's not the flight simulator that most of people uh, play with, but it's a real simulator of a spacecraft mm-hmm. where we validate all, all, all our algorithms. So um, why not using this, uh, this simulator for uh, learning env- as a learning environment to, to our AI? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's uh, really one of the one of the access, yeah. So that's very really cool. And if you if you don't mind me asking, how how long do these simulations usually take before you can again get some kind of you know like with an Atari game, it might take yeah. like uh, a day, a few days for it, depending on the, the strength of your processors and you know or your GPUs and things like that. Um, yeah. A couple of days before you get an answer. Um, do, are you, do you end up like running something for a year <laughs> and waiting for a result? How, like on average, how long do you? How long is the iteration process? Well, this is this is something. Uh, it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer, and in fact, I don't think it has an answer now because it really depends on on how ambitious you you want to be with your AI. So mm-hmm. uh, you can think. So the the software. Um, the uh, onboard software that you put in spacecraft is uh, massively complicated with many many different functions doing uh, different bits and mm-hmm. uh, yeah fun- functions or, or algorithms or whatever you want to, to say so you you could uh, in, in theory or in principle you could replace all those uh, algorithms by just one net and then train it on like from end to end mm-hmm. and that would take ages we i mean we're not at, at that point yet because uh, we're trying to apply ai in a in a way that actually in an industrial way not in a academic way that's mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you see what I mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we're really focusing, uh, focusing on, on getting things uh, to the level that we can actually use them rather than just uh, impressing the world, let's say. <laughs> uh, so, so um, yeah, if, if, you, if you're super ambitious and, and try to replace every bit, I, I don't know, that, that could take, uh, well, it's something we've, we've not tried yet. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if, you, if you are a bit more humble or at least uh, uh, for now, and, and do it um, with uh, with certain bits or certain functions of your spacecraft, the ones that maybe are uh, trickier, or or you know, um, yeah, the ones that are trickier. Then then uh, we're talking about uh, maybe five to six days uh, mm-hmm. of, of of training, something like that. Gotcha. Uh, it, it also also depends on on. Yeah, on really what is the the um, neural net topology architecture behind what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And so, do you think this is kind of more of a futuristic question? Do you think that, yeah. like you know, you, you mentioned, uh, be a, at this stage we have to be a bit more humble and build AI for specific parts of the spacecraft, specific um, you know tools inside that uh, that it can control rather than controlling the whole thing. But do you think, uh, from what your experience in the industry, do you think that in the 
future, we're going towards something like we see in Star Trek, where there's there's one AI that is responsible for the whole um, spacecraft, and that it like it can talk to humans, and it can you know open doors and switch the aircon on and off, and you know control thrusters and whatnot. It's like it's, the, it's as if the spacecraft has a mind of its own. Do you think that'll ever happen? Uh, well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, to me, that's. Uh... To me, that's the version on space of of the of the almost um, uh, yeah perfect uh, robot on Earth that will will be able to talk to you and will will be your companion for life. And mm-hmm. so, to me, that's as far as uh, or or even more because space is a very conservative world. As well. So I, I I would be I could see how even on Earth we have this uh, general artificial intelligence and still on space we are. But wait, it's not validated yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I gotcha. think that's very, very far-fetched. But, right. um, yeah, so first, I, I mean, it, first it, it has can. to happen on Earth, then it will happen in space. Well, I mean, this, these days, this seems to be a bit the, the trend, yeah. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, okay, and then, then moving on to the second application, or your second use case you mentioned, which is anomaly detection and... You you mentioned a a, a, a cro- abbreviation FDAR was that fault detection um, and what, what? Uh, uh, um, uh, fault detection isolation and recovery. Ah, okay, fault detection isolation FDIR and recovery. Yeah. Okay, so that actually reminded me of uh, in in the artificial intelligence course when when we were creating oh no in the deep learning course when we were creating it. There's a type of deep learning called Boltzmann machines. And the use case that is described for Boltzmann machines is actually uh, similar. So it's uh, anomaly detection, but at a nuclear power plant. And uh, for, okay. our, for our listeners who haven't taken the course, I'll just quickly describe. You can create a Boltzmann machine. It's kind of like a deep learning neural network. But rather than having an input and output, it's just a deep learning. Imagine like a, a circular deep learning neural network where it's kind of like all interconnected. Like you have on the on a circle, on an outer ring, you have all these uh, neurons and then they're all interconnected. And that is used rather than like putting inputs into the neural network and then getting outputs. That is used to just generally model. Every neuron models a parameter of the nuclear power plant. And then the neural network learns through observation how they interact together. And so it knows what are the normal states of this um, power plant and what are, uh, what are, therefore it also knows what are the abnormal states. And as soon as something becomes abnormal, it can like trigger an alarm very quickly. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm assuming the likelihood that that is exactly how you use neural network is very low, but at least I, uh, I can see that there is already a way, like I know in my head that there is a way that you could use neural networks for anomaly detection. Um, are you able to disclose any any like kind of um, general um, value, any general like kind of um, value points that you get from using neural networks in anomaly detection? I know you can't go into details on the exact algorithms or what yeah. you do, but in general, like how, yeah. how, how do they how do they help you with anomaly detection? Is it because like they can process way more data and you don't have to like you know describe every single thing, or is there something else? 
Yeah, so, um, okay, we, without, again, going into much detail, so there are, um, so, so the, the general principle behind uh, behind uh, doing FDAR with, with deep learning is the fact that you can teach or, or the neural net can learn what is nominal, um, so what is the nominal behavior of, of your equipment in, uh, in, in space, and this can be learned by simulations that Anyways, they are done uh, for other purposes. Mm -hmm. So you, you can use all that data, which is massive, uh, and just just um, to train neural nets on, on what is uh, nominal, mm -hmm. and then and then use uh, use the neural net to flag uh, to flag when something is not behaving as seen in your envelope of simulations. So then there, there's many ways, uh, many different ways in, in which you can do that. Uh, the one you've mentioned is a very valid one. Uh, there are even recently NASA's published papers where they do anomaly detection with um, with LSTMs, so future prediction and some sort of uh, anomaly score, uh, elaborated anomaly score. Mm -hmm. uh, then there are autoencoders uh, auto uh, yeah, there are, there are several papers on on how to do anomaly detection with autocoders, uh, also recently with uh, with GANs, uh, etc. So there are many ways in which you can do that. But the main principle, or what we we ultimately want to achieve, is is something that is able to first detect um, that something is wrong, something is inconsistent in, inside your system, and then. Uh, ultimately also isolated, so be able to pinpoint where the source of failure is. And mm -hmm. those those two things are, are quite important. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And uh, do you guys, like moving a bit away from deep learning, do you guys uh, yeah. um, ever use Byzantine fault tolerance? Mm -hmm. Sorry, uh, to use what, sorry? Byzantine fault tolerance. Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the with the name. Okay. The, no. No. No worries. Uh, I just. I just heard that. Uh, that that it's kind of like a system that when you have lots of different yeah. things in your circuit, lots of different. Um, I guess uh, algorithms and also different tools working at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. Like there's a tolerance, fault tolerance, where if you know one of them fails, the whole spaceship still keeps working, or if you know, like if uh, one yeah. of them is saying the wrong thing, it still keeps working. I just read somewhere that the International Space Station has a requirement for so, for at what what level of fault tolerance does a spaceship have before it will allow yeah. it to dock with the we, International Space Station. We we do work with that. Um, so I, I I just didn't know the name. So okay. basically, so the most uh, the most common solution uh, today for FDIR is uh, is sort of an expert system where you define uh, you do an analysis of uh, what can go wrong. So uh, you do a list uh, your F mecha um, list. So you go through the through your equipments, uh, so sensor actuators, you define your mission availability requirements, your fault tolerance, um, your, your yeah, mm -hmm. the degree of, of tolerance you have to have against faults, etc. And then based on that, you start uh, mapping on okay, what what are the type of failures that can occur, and what what will be the impact on the system. So what do I need to monitor in um, in order to pick up the, uh, this failure and reconfigure so that uh, I'm compliant with the safety and availability uh, 
requirements, and that's how you build your thing. So you can, you can imagine this is a very complex uh, thing to do, and uh, also yeah, it's, it's complex and, and and critical as well. Like if if you make a mistake there, and then uh, something unexpected happens, then you may not be covered by your FDIR um, design. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits of uh, deep learning here is that, um, or at least the, the methods we're working on, is that they're they're agnostic to this, so they they just know about um, what is uh, what is nominal, and if something isn't nominal, then it will flag mm-hmm. it will flag it. So th- this is uh, a bit of a uh, change in in, in the mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you you no longer need to worry about all the things that can go wrong, but you you know that everything that is not nominal is is wrong. So mm. you know the, there's a, there's even a safety um, change in mindset. Uh, mm-hmm. So gotcha, gotcha. Change, yeah. That's very cool. And when you say nominal, you mean kind of like uh, it's it's the normal, like whatever is nominal, you yeah. mean it's normal, and whatever is not nominal is not normal. Therefore, it's wrong. Exactly. Uh, okay. Nominal. So we we use nominal in, in space to to refer to to the set of conditions that the uh, spacecraft will operate normally. Mm. So if if it deviates from that, then there's something. Uh, well, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's uh, unseen or unexpected, and therefore we 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 would rather be careful about it, mm-hmm. just in case we we didn't design properly for it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, that's that's very cool. Um, all right. Well, thanks thanks so much for sharing those two main uh, use cases of deep learning uh, in uh, aerospace. Uh, so the optimization with artificial intelligence and anomaly detection or FDIR. Uh, what I wanted to talk about next was like your path. T- tell us, um, did you become an aerospace? Like I'm just such an interesting intersection of fields you know aerospace and uh, artificial intelligence at the same time so did you first become an aerospace engineer and then uh, get into this field of ai or the other way around did you become were you into ai and deep learning first and then you went into the aerospace engineering yeah no actually i i I'm a, an aerospace engineer because since I was little, I, uh, I was really fascinated by, uh, well, I, I always wanted to be an astronaut first. Yeah. And then uh, as I grew, well, I started to understand that it's maybe a bit difficult to become an astronaut, So, but I still liked uh, aircraft and, and spacecraft and so on. So I, I went for it. Also, because in, in Spain, it's a, it's a very um, yeah, nice degree to have, so it, it opens the door to many uh, possibilities. And then, so that's that's what I did. And then I, I wanted to lose because um, it's uh, well, the, the university where I started there is uh, is also uh, quite well known for its links to to industry and, and companies like uh, Airbus, Thales, etc. And and yeah, I wanted I, I knew I wanted to finish in um, or to or to work for a big company that you know can can work on these missions that. Uh, that have an impact on, on society. So yeah, and then and I made it. I made it there. I, I joined the UK straight after from from uni, and then uh, I spent some good three years, three years and a half, uh, immersed in um, in actual development work of uh, interplanetary missions. So working for Solar Orbiter um, for three years, and then Juice. Uh, so this is um. 
there's also a, a, an European Space Agency mission that is primed in, in France, but uh, we, we do in, in the UK uh, certain bits of the AOCS. And then after that, um, I was working a bit on, on the R&D uh, uh, strategy for, for, the, for the department, etc. And in my mind, uh, well, at, at the same time, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I was a really uh, enthusiastic about AI and machine learning, and I was really wanting to, to know more about it. So I, I kind of did it in my spare time. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, uh, it would be great if, if we could use these techniques as well for what we do because I think they have a lot of potential. So then I started to to come up with uh, with ideas of where and how we could use AI on this. And then uh, Airbus is, is pushing now for um, for a lot of innovation within the company just to make sure that uh, we keep up with the pace of the of the world in terms of innovation. And there are very frequently open innovation calls. So in one of these innovation calls, I, I submitted uh, one idea um, and I, I got funding for it. So I started uh, to work on it. And this is, uh, yeah, this this was, let's say, the first time that we were um, applying deep learning techniques for engineering solutions in, in the UK. Um, and and that's, that's how it all began. Then after that, uh, the the interest and the hunger uh, for AI has has kept increasing. And then uh, there, there was another innovation call in Airbus uh, for, um, we, they called it the AI campaign. So it's just a, a call for ideas on how we could use AI uh, to make our products and services better and, and our engineering uh, better and so on. So I submitted another idea and I, I got the funding for it. So now basically I'm, I'm just steering uh, these ideas and, and basically I've made it to combine this uh, AUCS world that I truly love with, with my other love, which is uh, AI and, and machine learning. And that's, that's really how, uh, how I got to this situation. Very inspiring. I love that that journey, <laughs> that path, how you got there. Seriously, it's it's so inspiring. And I, I'm very excited for our listeners because even if you're not in like you're not a hardcore data scientist and that's all you do, you know, machine learning AI, if you are in a uh, company, because there are lots of people listening to this who are um you know just like curious about the space of data science and you know how to potentially build a career there but they don't know really how to get into that how to get a job in that space or how to bring that into a company and this is a very good testament to that that like uh, Airbus didn't come to you and say hey uh, Carlos can you create some AI for us they just said okay here's an open call for innovation what what can you come up with and that's when you leveraged those things that you were exploring on the side on your own. And like my, that's what I want to say to everybody to listening to this, that if you have a passion for technology, for AI, deep learning, data science, machine learning, um, and you are like hesitant about how you can use that in your work, but there most likely there are ways. There's like a 90% chance that there is something that you can bring your company. 
like companies like Airbus, I know when I worked at Deloitte, they had open calls for innovation. Um, like companies, like large companies like that, they usually have these innovation labs or innovation challenges, innovation brainstorming sessions where you can bring your ideas. You just have to think, okay, what, what's that, what is it that I have learned? How can I apply it in my work? How can I apply it to make this business better? Because if you're working in a company, you probably love that company. You probably love what you're doing. Otherwise, you shouldn't be at that company. You, you know, like, <laughs> like in your case, right? Yeah, like it's, it's obvious absolutely. that you're passionate about what you're doing. And, and then the other thing is if you work at a smaller company like a mom and dad bakery store or um, I don't know, like um, some, some uh, smaller, even a pizza place or something like that, you can still, you don't have to wait for an open call for innovation. You, if you have an idea, you bring it to your boss, you bring it to your manager, if it's your business, you bring it into your business to your partners or whoever, and you decide like uh, you like show that you can add value, right? Like it's so easy these days to use these technologies such as artificial intelligence or even just machine simple machine learning to do a customer segmentation analysis or um, the an- analyze the workflow and see where the bottlenecks are and how you can improve them or improve the product and monitor quality, improve the service. Um, find out uh, hours operation where you're uh, analyze financial statements and things like that. There's lots of ways you can add value. And if you're truly passionate about both about your job and about what you're, you know, what you're learning on the side, you, it would be so cool to combine them. And so I'm, I really admire this example, Carlos, that you gave us where you combine two passions. I think, I think there's also another element that I perhaps not stressed uh, enough, but I think, um, the, the, we're now at a point where there's a lot of AI developed um, at at um, companies or or uh, like uh, or or by people that um, are really knowledgeable about AI. Mm-hmm. But to me, there is there is a step between that which which is now used to solve impressive but maybe not so meaningful problems. Mm-hmm. So. Th- that is that. But but then there is there is the part where AI actually becomes an, an comes here to help um, solving real problems. Mm-hmm. And I would say for for the type of things that we do in Airbus, so not, not all of them, but many of them, they require as much um, AI knowledge as they require uh, domain knowledge. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I mean is like, if you try to build uh, an anomaly detection, um, you know, like a, deep learning solution without knowing uh, what your uh, equipment, your sensors, actuators, uh, what your what is behind all of all of those things, you will probably end up doing something maybe even not working or if it works, it will work for, um, like not, not in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would stress the importance of of today of, of having this dual um, knowledge of domain knowledge and AI skills to in order to, to successfully apply AI um, in your work. So, yeah. That's really cool. I, ju- so, I, I just thought it was important to stress that because, uh, yeah, I just find that otherwise you see, I, I would not have been able to, to do such a thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally agree. And I like what you mentioned that there's a difference between artificial intelligence, that is the fancy AI that you know ends up in the news and that is developed mostly for academia which is really cool but not really applicable to real world challenges 
and that type of AI and versus artificial intelligence for business. AI for business is, uh, is what is actually driving companies forward, changing the world, is, is the hands-on stuff. And it doesn't have to be as fancy, right? It just has to, as you're, you're right, like if you have that domain knowledge, you combine it with the more simple and more accessible artificial intelligence, which you can do with TensorFlow, Keras, PyTorch, uh, and so on. Yeah. And you can just like, you know, even to the level of almost drag and drop, it's kind of like, okay, it's not drag and drop, but it's, you know, add five lines of code and you have a recurrent neural network set up. You know, that's, that's not really hard. You can, you can learn that in a yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and if, you know, <laughs> that's if, how it works for me. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's the fascinating part, right? Like we have an aerospace engineer on the podcast right now. And you would think that, you know, this is, this is the most complex that it gets. This is aeros, aeros, aerospace. This is where, you know, rocket science. You know, you'd think that you, you are, the, like, this is the time when you would need artificial, the most advanced artificial intelligence in the world. But no, like, even in aerospace, it is sufficient to, know, have domain knowledge and then go out and learn some, you know, artificial intelligence, not the super fancy cutting-edge artificial intelligence in the world, but just artificial intelligence like RNNs, LSTMs, um, you know, uh, CNNs maybe, and things like that, and apply it and see what happens. Like, that, that's very inspiring that, you know, like, if you can get such great results with this um, not super fancy artificial intelligence, but, like, basic, very... Um, well-developed, well-tested artificial intelligence, pretty much any other business in the world or 90% of other businesses in the world should be able to replicate your success. Well, well thanks very much, Kirill. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think um, the, what you're saying is true. And uh, basically, just by with this combination of, of uh, domain knowledge and uh, artificial intelligence, the, I mean, as you say, like even if you if, if you were to apply the most or the fanciest AI uh, on, on this domain, you will probably not have uh, will not be able to fly it uh, at any point because uh, you need to build credibility, you need to build uh, um, like customer uh, acceptance. Let's say mm -hmm. you need to, you need to go progressively on this, so you cannot do just a, a step jump and and say yeah. The, this is our former solution where, uh, you know, it's all handcrafted and everything. And this is our new solution where you don't understand it. So it's a complete black box to you and mm -hmm. and you have no... Um, so, yeah, I mm -hmm. think uh, going step by step and and this mixture between AI and domain knowledge is really, really important. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's, that's very inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, no problem. We're, we're slowly coming to the end of the podcast, but... Let's let's do a quick rapid fire questions uh, to get so we get a better feel for how you you know what kind of tools you use and and things like that and algorithms. You ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, what tools do you use on a daily basis? Like software tools, programming languages, deep learning, AI type of tools. Okay. So my aerospace uh, type of tools are uh, mostly MATLAB Simulink. Mm -hmm. um, for uh, everything that is uh, analysis and, and modeling, and then for the AI, uh, it's uh, mostly uh, Python with uh, TensorFlow, uh, Scikit-Learn, and 
yeah, that's well, NumPy for, mm-hmm. from Python, obviously, and, and that's it. Okay, that's cool. Um, what techniques do you use most commonly? So, um, you mentioned LSTMs, RNNs. Uh, can you just give us the full list of the your, your favorite techniques in the space? Yeah. So when it when it comes to time series, obviously uh, we we tend to go for RNNs. Um, so either LSTMs or GRUs are are often the preferred solutions. Um, then um, uh, we. We also uh, we've also worked with convolutional neural nets uh, when trying some uh, uh, generative adversarial networks paradigms as well. So having um, perhaps a, a discriminator that, uh, that is a mix of um, of uh, CNN uh, and uh, yeah, a deep neural net at the end of it. Uh, then also like a, a simple. Um, Concatenated dense layers um, for simple tasks have have proven to to work uh, properly. Um, yeah, and that's that's pretty pretty much it uh, with with time series, uh, which is ninety five percent of of the work. Today. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, nice, nice, yeah. nice. Uh, cool. All right. So moving on to more uh, kind of like experience and. Uh, um, Career type of questions. What what is your one most favorite thing about being in the space of data science, in the space of artificial intelligence? Well, to me, it's, it's really the the power of of uh, of what you of what you can achieve, uh, and also the the feeling that is something completely uh, is a changing mentality. So I, I like to compare it to. Uh, when when people did uh, did missions to the moon just using uh, a paper and a pen, mm-hmm. and then the computers were introduced to our daily jobs, and that completely changed it. So I have the feeling that AI could become this this other step change in in our uh, engineering world. And okay, we now now very few people have uh, AI to their uh, to the use or to the disposal, but um, maybe in in some years time the engineers will be enabled with it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Gotcha. And what is the thing that you're looking forward to learning next? Is there like one big thing that one big challenge in your educational journey about artificial intelligence that you're really looking forward to? Uh, well, um, we've we've uh, started investigating uh, reinforcement learning um, mm-hmm. not not so long ago. Uh, my my big challenge, my big personal challenge, is to is to uh, dig into this field and and take it further and really make it uh, a suitable paradigm for for our job and our algorithms. So to me, the main challenge is with reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's that's a really cool one. And finally, uh, from what you've seen about data science and artificial intelligence. What do you, where do you think this field is going? What should our listeners look into to prepare for the future that's coming ahead? Well, I think, I think the, uh, the way I see it is um, AI and machine learning is being democratized in the, in the last 
I would say five years with the introduction uh, introduction of things like uh, uh, TensorFlow, um, uh, more accessible computational power, also like all, all the explosion on the internet, information of courses like the one you did, etc. So now the the information is starting to be more available, and that's that's precisely how I I got to uh, to jump on, on this. So to me, the future is is really about uh, making um, not not a few people, but most of the people mm-hmm. uh, acquainted and and familiar with the tools, and so that they can incorporate them on their daily uh, work, and they can contribute and come up with with solutions on AI. So the fact the fact that you you have it used by more people increases the possibilities that you can do with it. So this is how I I think. Uh, this is going to evolve, and of course, there will be more and more um, like a cutting edge research. But to me, the, the main the main uh, change will be when when instead of one percent of population, uh, maybe forty percent of engineering population will be able to do AI on their daily jobs. Wow! And how far away do you think that is? Well. <laughs> I don't know. I hope. I hope in Airbus. Uh, so we are working for it, and I, I will. I'm going to be devoted as well. That's that's one of my challenges as well to to really be able to uh, to convince uh, like people at my level, but also top management that we need to empower engineers with with these tools so that we we can all benefit from that. And my hope is that uh, I don't know within two three years at least having people capable of doing this in, in every department, that would be an ambitious, but very, very good uh, um, uh, time frame for it. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, Carlos, thank you so much. That sounds like a very bright future. And thank you for the rapid fire answer questions. We've slowly come to the end of the podcast and uh, really appreciate you sharing all the insights. But before I let you go, I would like to ask where can our listeners get in touch with you? What's the best way to follow your career and find out what are some of the next amazing things that you'll get up to? Well, I would, uh, I would, I would suggest that if you, if you want to get in touch with me, do it uh, via LinkedIn. Um, I tend to, to answer everyone. I, I'm afraid I'm not such a um, Facebook user. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if, if someone uh, contacts me by fa- Facebook, there's likely there is very likely that I won't reply in two months, uh, but yeah. So LinkedIn is 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 okay, and yeah, don't don't be shy if if you have interesting things to say, if interest interesting feedback or or yeah, whatever you want to say, just uh, get get in touch with me. Gotcha, gotcha, fantastic, thank you. And I have one last question for you today. What is a book that you would like to recommend to our listeners for them to empower their careers? Um, so for me, the, if you really want to, to make it, uh, to go through this um, learning curve, I think the, the book that helped me the most was uh, Hanson uh, Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and, and TensorFlow. It's, I think I bought it uh, maybe seven or eight months ago, and it's got directly some pieces of code that I could implement directly, and they were working, and, and it also explains very well, it gives a good overview uh, of, uh, of different techniques, uh, it comes with uh, some application examples, it's really well written, so I, I strongly recommend it. 
Gotcha, thank you. So that's hands-on machine learning with scikit-learn and TensorFlow. Once again, Carlos, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing all your amazing insights and such a, <laughs> such a great and unique story of aerospace and artificial intelligence. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks very much, Kirill. It's, it's really an honor for me to, to be talking to you today. And yeah, thanks. Genuinely, thanks for this. <laughs> Fantastic, man. Thanks. Stay in touch. And everybody, make sure to follow Carlos and his career. So there you have it. That was Carlos Herbas Garcia, aerospace engineer at Airbus. Quite a different episode to what we normally talk about, don't you think? And it um, uh, would be interesting to know what your favorite part was. What is your main takeaway from this episode? Uh, I probably enjoyed, I enjoyed hearing about the two different types of applications. I think that was very... Uh, very cool that Carlos distinguished between the two, that there's this uh, one where they're optimizing and trying to find new ways, new solutions with artificial intelligence and the, the comparison to um, playing a computer game with artificial intelligence was very useful, very insightful because that's what we do in our courses. We mostly um, find these enclosed environments and learn how artificial intelligence can win that Atari computer game or something like that. And now we can see how that, those skills can be transferred to real life aerospace engineering, which is quite a complex thing. And then on the other hand, the second application, where, which is uh, fault uh, prevention, fault loss, uh, or anomaly detection and prevention and isolation and things like that. So that's also very, very powerful when you know a human can't keep their eyes on everything, on all the meters, all the gadgets and stuff like that, when an AI can take over and look for what's normal and what's abnormal and try to keep the system in a normal state. So that was, that was a very, very fun episode, I think. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with Carlos, if you're perhaps an aerospace engineer yourself and uh, you would like to learn how you can apply better artificial intelligence in your job, definitely get in touch. Otherwise, if you just want to follow Carlos's career, you can find his LinkedIn and all the things that we mentioned in this episode uh, in the show notes at www.superdayascience.com slash 217, that's 217. Um, and there you can also find the transcript for this episode. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I hope you enjoyed today's journey into yet another career and a very different one, um, but yet, uh, let alone somebody who still uses artificial intelligence and deep learning in their role. And on that note, I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>